0: Today, we begin a message series that's going to be about five parts long or so, and it's about Job, a person we all know. And today, we're asking the question Are these the good old days? For Job, the passage that Pastor Peter read just a little bit ago described for us his good old days those times he would look back on and find fondness and think about great memories and good times that he and his family had, his connection with God, his connection with community connection with others. It was a beautiful time and a wonderful time in his life. And he would call them the good old days. Pam and I, from time to time, go to Cracker Barrel. Anybody ever been to Cracker Barrel? If you have, lift your hand. Look at that. A bunch of people have been there before. And maybe uh, you you stop there when you're traveling, or maybe you just go there at a special events sometime. And I was at a particular Cracker Barrel. I can't remember which one. And uh, I was looking at all the things on the wall. Now, you know something that's amazing to me The older I get, the more familiar those things seem. It's just kind of crazy how that works. I was looking over and saw a carom board. I played carom for hours on end when I was a kid. That game with the stick and the little taws they called them. And uh, I would play a game on end and play World Series and all kinds of imagination in the cold, long winter nights uh, as a kid growing up. Uh, I looked over and I saw some of these little hand mixer things, you go something like this, and a sifter, red handle, and uh, it's a screen thing. Shoot, I looked them up online after I was thinking about that this week and and developing the message, and I thought, oh, my stars. Those things were made in the 40s and 50s. I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, so in growing up in the 60s and 70s, my mom still had some of that stuff from the 40s and 50s, because she would have gotten it, you know, wedding shower stuff or whatever, and so she would have had some of this stuff, and I I looked over and I thought, wow, I remember she would be doing the flour and put it in a sifter and stuff like that. Now, that is a picture of me when I was a little kid, and I used to say to my mom, Mom, I'm bored. That is not a smart thing to say to your mom. She's going to send you to do some chores, send you to do your homework, have you do some other stuff like that, but I look back on those days right now, and I recognize those as some good old days. Do you have some good old days in your life, sometimes you look back on, and sometimes there's trivial things that aren't that impressive to everybody else that happen along the way that you could call your good old days there are times that bring a warmth to your heart peace to your mind take you to a place and you can you can just open the door and smell the smells and feel the love of that good old day in your life and you remember those kind of times that you maybe had in the next service we're going to dedicate nine children and when we dedicate the nine children in that service i would imagine that some of the parents some of the parents um probably are a little bit annoyed at some of the nighttime wakings where they have a kid crying and they have to get up in the middle of the night. But it doesn't take too long for most kids to outgrow that. They wake up, you know, at normal times in the morning. And a parent could almost miss those tender moments if they're not careful. Almost is the optimal word. Almost miss those tender moments with those kids in the middle of the night, even though the kid couldn't talk back. And then you think about when you get just a little bit older and your children get a little bit older and you're kind of in that countdown till they leave and you're kind of thinking how much more time, how many more days, how many more months till they head off to college and then they head off out of the house and you're kind of like, whew, survive that. And then all of a sudden you realize the house is quiet and you look back on some of those other times when the house was a little bit louder and you say, the good old days. You kind of look in the rearview mirror of it all. Sometimes it's just the small things. Johnny Marks wrote a song, and the song he wrote was a simple tune that we would hear at Christmas time. It seemed like almost an embarrassing, inconsequential little tune. It's very secular. It seemed to have no merit to it at all. He went to Gene Autry and said, would you sing this? Gene didn't want to sing it, but his wife said, come on, Gene, sing it. Gene had an album where he had a big hit he thought on one side, and on the other side he went ahead and put this little tune, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Nobody even remembers what the big hit was because Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer remained such an incidental thought in his mind, but it became a great big hit. Job was living his good life. Job was living in his good old days. And he was going along. He may have been bored. He may not have realized that what was happening, whether it's small or big, was part of the fabric of the time that he would recognize as a good old days. You might be living some very good days right now where you say, wow, you know what? If I stop for a minute and think about it, we have food on the shelf. We have gas in the car. We have money in the bank. We have heat or cool in the home, whatever the season. We have a toilet that flushes. We have a bed to sleep on, and we start thinking about, man, these are good days. And very often, if we're not careful, we complain, we feel a little more entitled, we want this, we want that, we chase this, we chase that, the list goes on, but the fact of the matter is we might ought to stop for a minute and think about it. Now, when you come to the book of Job, some people will come to the book of Job, and they will say, well, this is a a story of literature, it is not a factual story, this did not actually happen. And then others will come along and they will say, well, no, the story of Job is factual. And they will list to you how it was quoted in the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament, and referred to by many significant, you know, like the apostles, etc. It was referred to as a great book. Well, I would say this to you, whether it is told as a story or whether it is a real account, it would say to us that there are truths we need to observe and learn because it isn't filler, it's within God's Word and it is available to us today. I believe it is a true account of a man that lived a long time ago in the area of Uz. Uh, He was attacked by the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, and we know that he had all kinds of warfare and things happening around him. We know that he had a job, and we know that he had a family, and we know that uh, several things like this are happening. We also know that he faced troubles. If you're in the early days of Job when he has a good life, and you look at his life, you say, wow, he's famous, he's rich, he's got a great family. He is, a, he is a well-respected man in the entire region, probably the best-known person in his time. Now, if a person were to die before Job hit all of his challenges, and you would ask them, what do you think about Job? They would tell you he was a superstar, He had all his life together, had things going right, right? All of us that live on this side of the reality of Job's problems, looking back at Job, we might say of someone who's going through all kinds of trouble, they got jobbed. We might say, well, they're as poor as Job's turkey. We would say something about Job in the sense of pain or trauma or all kinds of pressures of life. Did you ever think about that? It dawned on me while I was studying over the last few months about his life and what was going on with him. So I want today to look at three identifiers that describe Job's good old days and show us how to embrace our blessings while we have them. So I want you to think about that. I think it's going to be a bit of help. In the first verse and also in the third verse I noticed that Job had a great faith. He had a great faith in God. He lived a life that was conscientious before God. You know I was thinking about politicians and how they they live one way when they're at home with their family and how sometimes not, not all but many 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 go into the political arena and how they live differently. And it seemed like they're two different people. It seemed like they're They're Jekyll and Hyde. And some of them have said literally, well, that's what we do. We just go in there and argue, and then we walk out and we shake hands. Well, that wasn't just honest debate. Some of that was straight-up lies. How in the world can you separate the life that you live in private from the life you live in public and not be one in the same? But some would tend to do that. And I picked on politicians there just for a moment, but we could pick on a lot of industries, right? Right? Notice he is blameless and he is upright. The New Living Translation puts it this way. He was a man of complete integrity. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 2 verse 9, his wife says this. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? He is a man of integrity and even his family knows this. One writer, a German writer, puts it this way. He says, the whole heart disposed toward God and what is good and well disposed toward mankind is the definition of what blameless means. And there it is. Job lived his life as a God-centered life. We talked about it last week in that diagram where we put uh, Jesus or God in the bullseye. And then around it, we put all of the other things, our work, our family, our hobbies, all the other things, our wealth, our jobs, every other thing find itself in there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. When we were baptizing the other day over here, there was a lady in the second service who said, I was an atheist. I did not believe in God all my life. I did not believe in God. But then she met up with Vicky, a lady in the second service, and Vicky just worked with her and prayed with her and listened to her and answered her questions and continued to explain uh, the things of the faith and who God is and who God was. And the lady said, I believe in God. And she said to me when she came up front here, she said, I want my whole family to know about him now. I want everybody I know to know him. And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying. And everybody knew Job had a faith. It wasn't some undercover something. The scripture says he was a righteous man. The scripture says he is a blameless man. Scripture says he is integrity. So if you dealt with him in business life, you knew he had integrity. If you were married to him, you knew he had integrity. If you were his child, you knew he had integrity. If you're one of the employees, you knew he had integrity. Job was a righteous man, blameless in his life. That means he was shooting for right in everything that he did. And you and I on our own cannot live a life that is like that, but we have the privilege of calling on Christ. He's died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, and our faith in him and him alone can forgive our sin. He's not a God, he's the God. He's not a little God compared to the deity God. He is equal with God. Philippians chapter 2, read it sometime, it is there. Who being equal with God thought it not robbery to be called God this is who he is. So I want to ask you today, have you opened your heart to Christ? Have you opened your heart to God and said, here I am, forgive my sin and come into my life. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that today and put God at the center of your life. If you don't have him at the center of your life, things are going to go out of whack at some point. You're going to realize that the miss and Job had God at the center. But notice also in verse two, Job had a great family. He was a parent. Everybody does not get the blessing of being a parent. But Job had that blessing. The scripture tells us exactly that he had seven boys and that he had three girls. And his children got along well. They enjoyed regular social events. And the guys would host the parties at their house and they included their sisters. We want you here too. They're a close-knit family. They get along. Many of you come from a close-knit family. In just a couple months, you're going to sit around a Thanksgiving table as a close-knit family, or then you'll come around the table at Christmas time as a close-knit family and open presents and have whatever food that you enjoy as a family. It'll be a wonderful time that you'll have regular ongoing socials that they had. But Job was also, for lack of better expression, he was a priest or he was a pastor to his home. He wasn't necessarily a designated priest or or an ordained pastor, if you will, but he was a pastor nonetheless. Dr. McGee put it this way in his writing. He said, Job realized he could not raise quality kids on his own, so he went to God. And I'll guarantee you one thing about it, if you have any kids and you have any faith at all, your kids are going to improve your prayer life immensely. Can I get a witness somewhere in the house today? Oh, you know I can get a witness somewhere. Because I'm going to tell you something. Pam and I had three of them, headache, hemorrhoid, and hernia. And when we had those wonderful children that God blessed us with, you know I'm joking. Not really. When we had those kids, I I would pray sometimes, and I'm not joking, one to up to two hours a day in just straight prayer time. And I guarantee you they caused me to pray more throughout the day than I ever thought I would pray. I don't see how you can parent in a culture like today and not pray. Job, his kids are not called rebels. But he called them together regularly after they have been together. And he says, okay, let's have a time of family worship. Let's have a time where we think about God. Let's have a time when we make him the centerpiece of it all. He says in verse 5 of the passage here, he says, in case one of them may have sinned or cursed God in their heart. You wouldn't even know they did out loud. Wouldn't even know they did in their life. But he said, in case they did in their heart, we're going to go ahead and And they gave prayer to God. Now, some of you sitting here today may come from a marriage that's in trouble. You may come from a, a relationship that's fractured or stressed. Every marriage goes through stresses from time to time. Don't think it doesn't. You're not the exception. So what do you do about it? When we had Dr. Dan Seaborn here uh, recently, he illustrated. If you were here, you remember how he put three chairs and how he said he sits in one, his wife sits in one, and they invite the Lord to sit in the other chair and how they began to to pray and learn to pray better together in a disciplined way where they could just go ahead and pray for for a set amount of time and how it became a more comfortable, more natural thing We go to church together, but do we ever pray together? Don't blame and say, well, if he or if she. No, do you. Do you lead it at your house? You may be the lady. You may be the guy. You don't have to every time be the one, but just lead it and say, we need a minute of prayer here together. Most marriages I know of, that are in trouble right now, most, right now, if each one put God at the center and grow toward him and then ask His question, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do in this relationship? And second, understand your spouse and their love language and say, Lord, what do I need to do to make my relationship better? And you know what? You know what you need to do most of the time. Knock off the stinking arguing. Quit criticizing. Life's too stinking short. Ask some of these whose husband or wife has died. The things they worried about didn't matter a bit. We nitpick over nothing. Just say, I'm done with all that. I don't have to be right. You know the Eagles are a great football team, and that's just settled, you know. Or <laughs> Penn State's the best. You know, I mean, just quit fighting. Just, and say, no... I'm going to do what I need to do. My wife was out in Missouri and then she went to Indiana for a conference. She was in Missouri for a family, she went over to Indiana for a conference and came home. And as she was getting ready to come back, there were some things I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that the, dish, the dishes were all put away. I wanted to make sure that the house was respectable. I wanted to make sure that her vehicle, when she got home, had gas in it. When she came home, she said, boy, that was a long trip. I don't want to be gone that long again. I didn't tell her, yes, that was a long trip, and not speak to her for the next three hours. Cold shoulder, I didn't do it. It's quiet in this place. And I think it's probably quiet at the other campuses right now as well. Because this is good preaching. This is helpful stuff. Dr. David McKinnon said this, I like it. He said, Job's children would share the same memory. They knew their father as a religious mentor and a spiritual mediator for them. Well, let's move along. Look at verse 3. We notice here in verse 3 that Job had great success. Now, the scripture tells us that he was very rich. He was rich in faith. He was rich in family. He was rich in tradition. But verse 3 says that he was very wealthy in material assets. Now, this week I was listening to Dave Ramsey. I've taught, along with my wife, several of Ramsey's courses. And no expert, but I learned a lot from Dave. And they had a show on that was for millionaires only. Millionaires call in on that XM channel where Dave and his co-hosts were. And there they would tell their story of how they became millionaires. They never got to my call. But um, anyway, uh, I was listening to how others got there. And it was, it was really interesting to hear how they get there. But you know something I've noticed in teaching his class on uh, Financial Peace University three different times? You know what You know what I learned He emphasizes tithing. He says, You need to give to God. You need to give to to a cause bigger than yourself, greater than yourself, more than yourself. He's a tither. I like John Maxwell's leadership. I've met John Maxwell, I had lunch with him a couple of times. He's a wonderful guy, a Wesleyan pastor for many years. I followed a lot of the books he's read, taught a lot of leadership that John has. John teaches tithing and tithes himself, and he, of course, is a millionaire probably times over, but he is a millionaire guy. He teaches leadership around the world, secular universities and secular companies and secular sports teams all over the world. He's a great leader, and if you're in leadership, you probably, he's considered top, if not the top, among the very, very elite teaching leadership. He's phenomenal, wonderful guy. Somebody has said this. It is easy to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Job knew the value of everything. This story of Job proves it. It is an incredible story. And Job was also very wise in his success. He's very wise. He knew that fame and fortune are fragile bubbles. Nudge your neighbor and say, everything around is fragile. Go ahead and do it. Everything around, he knew fame and fortune were fragile, health is fragile. Job did not listen to this. He didn't let his righteousness make him so pious, he wasn't relevant. And he didn't let his riches make him so aloof and elite and snobbish that he was not relevant. For he allowed himself to keep his family together with fame and fortune. And he allowed himself to keep his righteousness in perspective to where he didn't shove it up his kid's nose and where he didn't make them not want it. He was giving himself to God and a proper balance and order. He was a well-organized man. Notice the order of things in verses 1 through 5 that Job describes in his life. I love this order, and I think we ought to adopt it ourselves. Number one, notice that he had had a commitment to God. Write it down somewhere in your mind, a commitment to God. Your commitment to God should be number one. Why? Because he brought you into the world. He's the one who's been with you all the way in the world, and he's the one you're going to see at the end of their life in the world. You need to have God number one. Your spouse may come, your spouse may go. You may outlive your spouse. They're not number one. God is number one. In heaven, you're not even married to your spouse. Did you know that? Read the Bible. You're not even married to them. Matter of fact, jokingly, can I joke a minute? Would everybody be okay if I joke? I told Pam, if I die first and you you get married again, don't even bother looking me up in heaven. (laughs) All right, our commitment to God. Joke. What's the next one? Number two, our commitment to our family. If you brought them into the world, you need to take care of them, and you need to be there and commit to them. And listen, you're going to have to have, if you're going to be married, you've got to have a good forgiver. Work on it. I'm not good at it. I have to work on it, work on it, work on it. And I get better at it when I realize I have to be forgiven. See that? Then I realize, oh, Kev, okay. get off your high horse. You're not St. Pious. Just remember, you're Kev. Got feet of clay, wear a little shoe, and all that, all right? Now, my kids, I look at it this way, raising my kids, I didn't have to be their best friend. My mother taught me that. You don't have to be the best friend. But you do have to be a father. There's a difference. Think about that. What's the third one here? Committed to your business or your other stuff in life. So both last week, a couple weeks ago, this week, Talking about this idea of having our priorities straight. It's a subplot of the message. He has God, his family. So look at it this way if he lost his business, he still had his family. So he's still wealthy. If he lost his family, he still had his faith, the most important thing. So he's still wealthy. So he can lose everything and still be wealthy. It depends how you look at your wealth. He did not let his possessions possess him. Cliché, but it's well said. So today I ask you, what what is your definition of success and what is your view of possessions? When you answer those questions, you'll see how you'll handle life situations when they come at you as they will. Now we've just considered a portfolio of a very famous person, one of the most famous people in all the world, secular and sacred alike know of Job. They've quoted Job. They've talked about Job. I've spoken at different times to different people, and if I want to go to a universal subject, I can always pull on Job, because everybody knows about Job. We all know Job. We've either lived in his neighborhood or a couple blocks away. We all know Job. We all have heard of him. And these first five verses show us how the world around him saw him then. But as we go through these next four messages, we're going to see how the world sees him now and see how he handles situations of life that were not really comfortable. So how you align your priorities will determine how you handle those things that come into your life. God was first, family second, business and friends and all that other stuff followed after that. Lord, this morning, you have given many, many messages within the overall message, I believe. Job chapter 1 is just full, full of incredible insights and beautiful rabbit trails that take us down these avenues to see different truths that you want us to grab while we're going through catching the setting of this book. So, Lord, help us not to rush by all of this. And today, if, if it's kind of something in the message that's been a bullseye into some area of our heart, don't let anybody get mad at me because I'm just am a messenger. But I pray, Lord, to just say, well, God, what are you saying? Are you saying something that, about this? And Lord, if you're speaking, help us to hear you. Because when we hear you, we have a chance to do something about some area that needs to be strengthened or corrected or aligned better with your will. We don't know what you're saying today to everyone else, but Lord, help me to hear what you say to me. And help us be the people you want us to be for the honor and glory of your kingdom. That when people tell our story, they'll be able to tell it well and know that we loved you even as Job did. In your name we pray. Amen.